You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On this episode, we have Jeff So, who is co-founder and CEO of FigTech. Fig creates on-ramps for underbanked Americans to repair their credit score and regain access to additional financial services. Fig started as a collaboration with United Way in Houston and became the first fintech to be both B Corp certified and a U.S. Treasury recognized community development financial institution, CDFI. Fig's investors include Techstars, Upper 90, Village Capital, and yours truly purpose built. Prior to Fig, Jeff previously worked at the Boston Consulting Group in strategy and consumer products. Jeff holds a BS in chemical engineering from MIT and an MBA in applied data analytics from the Warden School. They serve 400,000 customers. One of their products is a loan, which averages $400 in size. It's an unsecured short-term loan. They do all of this, serve all of these customers with only about 15 employees, which we'll talk about his emphasis and how he achieves that. There's a lot to learn in this episode about picking your co-founder, his approach to prioritization, thinking about how optimistic to be, trade-offs in growth and profitability, and why their mission is so important. A lot here, so please stay tuned. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm wondering, how did you find yourself giving out short-term loans? Uh, it's kind of a long story. So I, I would say the, the idea for loans uh, is originally from my co-founder. So he, when he was working at Oliver Wyman, they did a bit of work for the CFPB. And I think that's how he discovered the industry. Um, my, my interest in this space really came from him, but I think I have, I have a broader interest in, I think, helping people realize potential. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. I think Buffalo is a very interesting place. Uh, I also had not really seen much of the world or didn't have much exposure to say like all of the industries that, that you could go into. And I was very fortunate. I had a opportunity to go to a high school that I probably shouldn't have been at. Uh, and it really opened my eyes to the potential of, of what was out there. Uh, and I think that that created a pretty lasting impression for me, something that I, I value pretty highly. Uh, and I, I, I hope my hope for my own career was to be able to uh, pay that forward in a way uh, for others. Say more about realizing potential. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think there's, there's probably two things here. The first one is this idea of uh, if you've ever had you know, a school, a coach, a mentor, a boss, uh, someone who you felt like really went on a limb uh, and and went to bat for you, um, and I, I feel like that that tends to create a deeper bond uh, between the two people or the the person in the institution that people people should recognize and value more. And I think that that from the company perspective, that's that's something that we want to do. Looking at it from the other lens uh, on the consumer side, uh, we have a lot of people who 
we work with that have pretty low credit scores and they uh, may have made a mistake with credit earlier in their lives. Uh, they did what they thought was a, a responsible thing by saying, hey, look, I'm not going to use credit anymore. And you know, as, as time passed, uh, it, it's pretty hard in this world to exist completely outside of the traditional credit products. And so they, they had to reintroduce themselves to credit, but their score looks like they were seven years ago, right? Like imagine someone judging you based on your driver's license photo and only that. And so from our perspective, we're looking to help these people update that photo. We're looking to help them uh, make their credit score look like who they are today and who they want to be tomorrow. And in, and in that sense, unlocking their financial their financial potential. And so giving them the money that they need will help them reach that potential. Yeah. So uh, building credit is a pretty unique process, right? In the sense that you have to get, or at least in the US, the, the way the credit markets work is you have to get credit to build credit. But if you have bad credit, no one will give you credit. And so part of the process is getting credit. And for the clients that we work with, uh, there are not very many places that will offer them credit, but also offer them the credit reporting uh, that they need to start updating that score. And you do that? So we, uh, we offer emergency loans when people need them. We report to the credit bureaus every day. That's something that we're actually quite proud of. I think most institutions report once a month because it's a bit of a headache. On our side, like we, we wanted to make sure that our clients had the most accurate information reported. And then we also offer a handful of other credit building products for people who don't actually need the money today, but are more interested in the credit building aspect. And part of what I find fascinating about your origin story is how closely you've worked with nonprofits. Yeah, I would say it's somewhat in our DNA. I think that we have always been concerned that corporations with having the best intentions ultimately make decisions that aren't necessarily aligned with the interest or the values of a community. And it's, it's not because they intend to do that. It, it just happens because there, there aren't these open lines of communication. I, I think that I've, I've always believed and I still believe that uh, nonprofits actually, they give you a window into exactly what the different local communities need. And if you're willing to have an open conversation with them, they're actually very, very ready and willing partners. When you were first working on the idea and learning about the needs of people, how did you go about asking the right questions and looking in the right places? Yeah. When we originally started, I, I think it's similar to many other startup stories, right? So we stood outside payday lending stores. We tried to interview people who had gone in and come out, ask them the good, bad, and the ugly. I, I think it's it's a tough time to find someone to interview when they are going into a loan drop. Uh, but we had the same conversations with the nonprofits, right? We said, hey, look, you know, you guys are financial coaches. You work with people on a day-to-day -day basis. What, what makes the existing products predatory? People know that they're not good. Like, why are they still using them? There's a cliffhanger. What's the answer? <laughs> the answer is that there, sometimes you have no choice. So when you're faced with the... the a, a cash cash deficit and no one is willing to lend you that money. And it's, it's, it's between you know, paying the utility bill or paying rent and, and borrowing the money. You're, you're willing to find the money wherever it is. And that sometimes leads to a cycle of, of borrowing again. Yeah. It's interesting because there's, there's a parallel right? With student debt and people's like, like you, you, you hear these horror stories of, of people making payment after payment after payment, and then looking at their balance and realizing the balance has not changed at all. And it's a somewhat similar 
uh, challenge uh, for all loans, right? Where there isn't enough education on how interest works and how amortization works. And I think people take that, that bit for granted until they're living it. And then they realize, you know, I've already paid two, three times the amount that I borrowed and I'm still here. Yeah, I think a quote perhaps misattributed to Albert Einstein, the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think it's, it's interesting because when, when, when you say that, it, it, it strikes me both ways right? It's powerful on the positive side, but it's also powerful on the negative side. And I think people don't pay compound interest enough respect on the negative side. Is that part of what the CFPB was trying to change? Was a labeling and education perspective? Or they also had product design ideas that were proposed right as you were getting started. I, I'm not remembering all the details, but please remind me. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right, right? So the original regulation has a piece on evaluating ability to repay. Uh, I think they, their challenge was that businesses were giving people loans that were not feasible within their budget. But I think it's different, different ways to attack the same problem, right? I think that the CFPB and to some degree, the work that we're doing is we're trying to create products that people can pay off and people can pay them off by, I guess, having the budget to do so, uh, but they also need to have the understanding. I think it's ultimately two sides of the same coin where any single approach may not be enough on its own, right? Like I, I think this is more of a holistic problem uh, where you have to address all aspects properly. And you're trying to do that in the business practices and the design of the way you approach things. Yeah, that's right. I think we're, we're trying to create a product where we're able to offer that education that, that, that people may need in the moment that they need it, right? I think that one of my challenges with financial education today is that you can find everything on the internet, right? There, there, there's, there's no shortage of availability of information. And so it, it really, it seems like the linchpin is actually in the delivery, right? Like, can you find can you deliver the right information at the right time uh, so that someone can have it in their hands as they're making a decision? So the right information at the right time. You also mentioned ability to repay, which as a layman, I think would be kind of obvious that every lender would want to know if you can pay back the loan. Like, What's new about that? Yeah. So that, uh, that's a great comment. Uh, so I think historically, you know, traditional lending has been based off of this credit score. And it is a, it's essentially a seven-year history of all the debt that you have borrowed and repaid. And I mean, I'm going to touch on this briefly, and then we should probably never come back to this topic. But like the, like even the US government, like we are in debt, right? Like we are a capitalistic society where people tend to borrow a lot more than they can actually pay back immediately. And that tends to work because it allows people to make larger purchases, uh, but it requires planning, right? It requires predictability, it requires stability, and, and it requires someone to have a good understanding of what they can pay back in the future. So I think what ultimately is it's a bigger issue where as financial companies have, have looked to both uh, acquire and retain customers, they've offered larger and larger amounts uh, well beyond the initial budget, right? And like that, that's kind of the power of leverage to begin with. But there's also the danger, right? Similar, similar to compounding interest, right? A double-edged sword. Gotcha. And you've also taken the step of becoming a CDFI, which is rare, if not unique, right? 
Yeah. So it's something that we worked really, really hard on, honestly. It's a lot more reporting than you would normally take on as a company. But I also, I, I think that we felt it was important. Uh, it, it really aligned our interests with the community. Part of the requirements is having a community board, basically keeping that dialogue open, right? So CDFIs, their focus is on actually serving specific communities and you actually list the markets that you serve. And then the board that you assemble actually has to, uh, has to come from those communities. And, and so it's similar, similar to the B Corp certification, it, it just brings additional stakeholders into the conversation, allowing you to create a solution that, that actually better fits the people. That, that you're trying to serve. So as I understand it, you're holding yourself voluntarily to a higher standard on the CFPB regs that never were finalized. So they're, they're not actually the rules. And you have voluntarily registered as a CDFI, which has a whole set of rules holding you to a higher standard. How else do you hold yourself accountable to offering financial products that are actually helpful to people? I think the first thing I would say is we hold ourselves to a higher standard for two reasons, right? The first one is because uh, it's important to us and it's in inherent in our values. I think the second one is I actually think it's good business practice. Uh, I think that like, like these are basic principles of you know, having transparent conversation, being thoughtful in, in what you do and, and, and thinking about the second and third order consequences. And in terms of other things, like I, I think that it is, it's largely around like running the business, right? So different from other products, like lending the, the, the dollars are very in your face, right? So like every dollar that we, that we make as a business is a dollar that our consumer is paying. And I think that's something that our, my, our entire team is very cognizant of. And that's actually why most of the work we do is focused on reducing the cost to run the business, right? So all, all of our technologies are focused on cost reduction because we firmly believe that that's the best way for us to put more value back in the community by letting people have more dollars back, being able to offer them a lower price uh, because that's what they need at that moment, right? Like it's, it's very clear when they borrow from us, what they need is money. And if we can offer at a lower rate, then we're doing our part. So you're saying lower operational costs let you have lower prices to your customers. I have a mental model that the three most important levers in lending are customer acquisition costs, underwriting and associated losses, and then your own cost of capital. And you're pointing out that operating expense is another important lever that can help you offer lower prices. I, I think your mental model is correct. And it's generally, and, and it fits for all lending. I would add operating as a fourth component. And then I would say the relative size and value of them changes based on the size of the loan and the length of the loan, right? So if I have a $100,000 mortgage, there's plenty of room for operating costs, right? But if you have a two or $300 loan, the fixed costs start to become a lot bigger as a percentage of the uh, unit economics. And so that actually changes the relative percentages, the buckets. Right. Looking at it from the outside, it seems like you have a belief that good service is self-service. I mean, the amount of headcount you have devoted to customer service is extremely low. Yeah. So we're, we pride ourselves on providing immediate responses uh, but quality responses. I think uh, it, it has some to do with self-service and some to do with understanding what people are looking for. 
uh, when they contact us using the kind of contextual clues to identify the different, I guess, situations that someone could be in. And then honestly, modeling out, right? Like taking the data that we have and saying, hey, when these three conditions exist, 95% of people are asking this question, right? And then if we know that 95% are asking this question, then we can start to think about ways to automatically address it or like use technology to really augment our response. So the same customer service representative is not reading, you know, a hundred messages that are by and large the same in content and then having to write the same response over and over again. And how else do you keep operation costs low? I think on the, on the other side, it's being thoughtful about where we spend our money and, and how many experiments that we run. I think that the growth is also an aspect of it, right? I think a lot of businesses today, especially venture backwards, like the priority is to grow as fast as possible. I think growing fast creates different challenges for the business, right? Like a lot of companies take on more technical and operational debt. For us, like the, the philosophy has always been, if we don't do it today, there's a very low chance we're going to do it tomorrow. And, and so we, we, tend to have, we tend to go through more cycles where we're looking inward and saying, hey, how do we clean up the house? How do we address some of the operational debt? How do we address the technical debt, right? And knowing that those two are actually very linked right? The, the corner case that was, you know, one or two customers a year ago is now a hundred. Say that again. You're talking about if we don't do it today, we won't do it tomorrow. Meaning yeah. what? Like don't assume that we'll have more energy or insight or more time to devote to this area. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, to some degree. I am, I'm, I'm I realize how it could be misconstrued. I think that I would I would preface it by saying it really has to do with operational debt, right? Like, uh, or 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 even technical debt in uh, in that sense. I think I'll, there's there's a broader philosophy of hey, as we get bigger, we'll come back and you know we'll fix these elements of the code base, which will then save you know these hundred hours of operational time handling the corner cases. And I, I think it's, it's a big challenge, right? Because like for businesses, there's always more on the horizon and it, it's generally quite hard to prioritize some of the nuts and bolts kind of house cleaning items when you have all of these much bigger value activities for the company. Uh, and, and so these housekeeping items just sit on the side, right? They're always there. They're always number 10 on the priority list, but they remain number 10 because new things come in. I, I think for us, part, part of the strategy is to say, look, like, let's set aside dedicated time every year and let's come and let's, let's work on these things because while they may not be number one on the list, over time, they actually can create significant value, right? I, I think it comes back to this idea of we are interested in reducing the cost to provide financial products. And if you take that as the priority of the let uh, or as a key part of our prioritization, then these become a lot more important. How do you think about prioritization as a company and as a founder? I think it's really hard. <laughs> I would say I don't have a particular method for thinking about it. I would say as a founder, I am actually, I'm of the type that is much, much more easily excited, right? I, I love to think about the next step. I'm focused on all of these other opportunities we could pursue. I think that companies ultimately need balance. And part of building a team is creating that balance, building balance around your own personality. So I would be the first to admit that I definitely take help from my team in maintaining the prioritization that we set because I, I'm always seeing the exciting opportunity down the road. That's what they call shiny object syndrome, right? <laughs>
Yeah, that is correct. I, I think the I, I definitely suffer from shiny object syndrome. I would say to some degree, my focus, our focus is always on the mission, right? It's, it's, is what we're doing good for the community? Are we making products more affordable? Are we making them more accessible? And as long as we're doing that, I, I, I would say that is, that is core to my prioritization. And then within, within that lens, I would say I, I do rely a bit more on my team and the leaders in our organization to say, hey, you know, you gave us a bunch of things to do. Here's the list that I'm seeing. And like, here, here's what we can do today. I would say it's less of a shiny object thing and more of an optimism aspect. I just, I just believe that people can do more. And if we're excited and we're focused, like we can get more things done, then it's potentially realistic. Uh, in a short amount of time. So I would be first to admit that that's, that, that can lead to unfair expectations. Definitely acknowledge that as something that I will do from time to time. Does your co-founder help balance that? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I think I've been very fortunate. Uh, my co-founder, very good at prioritization. Some of our other leaders, also very good at prioritization. I, I think it's, it's naturally something that I look for because I know it's an area where there's there it's like left brain right brain to to some degree right like if you're really looking for the next you know five years of opportunities it it's harder to jump back and forth between mindsets and speaking of your co-founder i'd love to hear how you decided to work together yeah john and i met originally at a hackathon so it was we were both in grad school we went with a group of other grad students to a hackathon. And there's a lot, like this was a, a student-run hackathon at Penn. And there was, you know, a bunch of different seminars, kind of activities. Uh, and this is, in the more traditional sense, it's like an overnight computer hacking party, right? People go at like 10 and then they stay the whole weekend. So John and I met and then we actually started working on projects together during this hackathon. And then that, that was really the beginning where kind of, we continued to work on different types of projects and one after another, uh, obviously most of them did not work out. And then we, we started working on FIG and it was, yeah, it, it, it was kind of a culmination of the different types of projects we've done. And that led us to where we are today. So you had experience working together, trying to build things, trying to sell them. How did you know that this was the idea that you wanted to put effort behind? Like, how do you judge whether it's working? Yeah. So I think at a later stage, it, it's much easier when you're able to have a conversation with your consumers and that you can see it happening in practice. Early on, there, there's some derivative of that, right? So having failed, tried and failed at a bunch of different ideas during our time in school together, like this one, we were much more cautiously optimistic about. When we got started, right, the first thing we did, we said, look, we're going to interview as many financial coaches as we can. And I, I think those initial interviews actually helped shed light on there's a, there's a massive demand for the product, right? Like they essentially said, if you build it, we will use it. And, and I feel like as a founder, that that's something that you're kind of waiting to hear, right? You're, you're looking for that pull demand. And then when you, when you do discover it, you're still not sure. And so this was one where we, we took, you know, one step at a time. We said, Hey, you know, it sounds like you guys are really interested. Like, let us invest some more time, right? Like, let us build like a, a, a prototype. And then we presented that to probably about 100 nonprofit 
or financial coaches at this kind of like broader gathering that they had and people were very excited. Uh, and so that that's what led us to the next step where we said, okay, like let's move to Houston uh, and start working with these coaches to, to, to put this product together and, and bring it to life. And so at, at every stage, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's very similar to good product development, right? You're, you're keeping a constant line of communication with your, with your users. And then you're, you're using those signals to guide you uh, and give you the confidence in the next step. Do you think the consulting background that both you and your co-founder have helped with this process? I think it does. I, I, I would say it's, it does. Like I, pers- like I wish we had a bit more of a product background, but I think the consulting background is very similar, right? It's uh, the, the philosophy that I, I've, I've always bought into is I, I'm not actually here to create the answer, uh, like the, the people who experience the problem every day, they, they already know what the answer is, right? Like I'm, I'm not here to tell someone to uh, how to run their business as a consultant. I'm, I'm here to basically help you uncover uh, the solutions that you already have, right? Reframe them and then present them in a way to the, to the leadership of the company uh, that they can understand like the answers were here all along. And, that, and so, yeah, I, I I, I think it's pretty similar, right? So like, I think nonprofits are generally used to companies coming in and telling them, you know, this is going to be the next best thing. And like, we're going to make it and you're going to love it. And that's not exactly right, right? Because like th- these financial coaches are, are living it day to day and they know what they need. And I, I, I think maybe that the big pieces here is just listening, right? Taking the time to listen and then acknowledging the fact that in the beginning, like we would never know everything. And even today, right? Like there's still more to learn. How do you keep that learning going? I think you just keep the conversation going. I, uh, it's, so it's, you're literally yourself talking to customers or is that something you are able to delegate? Yeah. So our team talks to customers. I talk to some customers still, and I definitely talk to some our, our nonprofits as well. I think it's probably closer to the DNA of our company that people take the time to have that conversation. It's, it's both good in the sense that you can see the impact that you're having, but you also get to learn, right? A little bit more. Each conversation may not reveal like the next nugget, but it's it's more about empathy than it is anything else. So getting a sense that you know what your customer would want you to do when it's time to make decisions. Yeah. And, and also being able to visualize the customer in your mind, right? Like if, if you talk to them, very recently, like you have a sense for exactly how our decision is going to impact this person. If each, each person on our company is talking to some other different customer, as a group, we're actually getting a lot more information. How many customers do you have? About 400,000 customers. Wow, that's a lot of people to talk to. <laughs> yeah, it is. I Honestly, it's, I feel the, the responsibility as, as the company grows. You know, these people rely on us to be here. And I I think I I take that stewardship very seriously because if if we weren't around, then they would have to go to one of the more traditional options uh, that that doesn't offer them the same benefits that we are. What have been some of the challenges as you're building the company? I think there's a broader existential challenge and it's around how do you choose between the different stakeholders, right? Is it like, is is Generating more revenue, like and investing that in the business, is that the best thing right now for kind of this broader utilitarian cause? Is it you know reducing the price and reducing the revenue, but actually giving more value back to the community? Is 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 that the right move at this time? And I, I think that it's it's kind of like one of those balance boards, 
right? Where you got that, the, the tube in the middle, and then you're kind of going from side to side. And so I think that like what makes it super challenging is that there's no right answer. And the answer is constantly changing uh, based on the information that you're getting. Can you give any concrete examples of that? Yeah, I think there was a hurricane in Houston, I think Hurricane Harvey, right in 2017. Uh, and, and we were a very small company at that time. But it was like Houston was the original market that we started in, and it was devastating for the entire community. And I think at that time, like we, uh, we were both looking at our ability to get information out. So we actually, we wrote blog posts and articles about just like emergency information. And then we sunk a ton of ad dollars into it, not for the sake of, you know, building or doing loans and building the business, but just to get people information that they needed at a time where it was a, there, there was a lot of confusion. I, I think it, it's choices like that where I, I don't think that it's, it wasn't immediately beneficial for the business for us to do it. But I, I think it, as we make these choices over time, I, I hope that it, it separates us as a company that is thoughtful about their role uh, in the community. And do you feel like that paid off? I think so. I, I would say some of these, like, like the, these investments we make, like they're, they're some, to some degree investments, but they're some degree part of the character of the company, right? Like we are ethos is we're always, we're very community first. And so do, uh, doing something like that is, it comes very naturally to us, but it's also not something that we think of as a, if we do this, it will generate this amount of return in the future. I think this is one of those longer things where you're really trying to establish character, right? And, and, and if you can establish that with consistency over time, there's the, like, if, if someone could probably help me quantify it, but I, I do believe that in the long run, like each, each individual one of these actions will pay off for the company. Do you have any advice for aspiring founders? Yeah, I think <laughs> I'd probably say everything takes longer than you think it will. <laughs> So what do you do about that? It sounds like you're still very optimistic about how quickly things can be done and you haven't necessarily changed that optimism, but yet yeah. you're also aware that things can take longer. What, what should someone do? Definitely. So I, I think that for future founder, I'd say as, as you're making your plans, right? Like just double the timeline, right? And then take a look at it. And like, if everything takes longer, it actually like maybe this conversation is naturally coming full circle. It, it forces you to prioritize better, right? Like if I had to rank order the things we wanted to do and they all took twice as long, what are the things that I could live without? And yeah, so I, I think I, I remain optimistic because I think that's just my nature. Um, but I, I also recognize that essentially I'll, I'll come up with a timeline of what I think and then I'll double it and be like, okay, this, this is probably still optimistic because it's, it's easy to subconsciously adjust. Gotcha. I remember looking back after we'd gone public at the original plans for my first business and the unit economics were surprisingly on point from our first fundraising pitches. Mm -hmm. But to your point, it took us a lot longer to get the product in market in the first place. Yeah. I, I think like the other thing I would say is like, it takes longer, not because, you know, people are like, it, 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 it's not anyone's fault, right? Like I think even on a day-to-day -day planning, right? You said, you say I have a hundred percent of my day. I'm going to spend 100% on this high priority item. That never happens, right? Like things come up, right? Especially as the business grows, things just happen. 
and you kind of have to allocate a quarter of your day to like the the like the next surprise that comes out and just be 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 realistic right like when you're planning and saying look like we actually have to hold you know x percent of our capacity for just things that could happen and 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 that should help make your timelines a lot more accurate especially once you're operating a business um, and yeah. you have customers to serve yeah customers to serve right like they're affected by any sort of macro macroeconomic events yeah day to day all all sorts of things can happen and and both both good and bad uh and, and ha- having the capacity to deal with them properly I, I think is also part of keeping a tidy house good advice with that in mind as you look towards the future for fig what do you see i'm really excited about two pieces i think the first one is the new products that we have coming down the line right we're very excited about the stuff that we do today we're looking to expand it into new markets. Uh, we're also looking to introduce new products, right? Like as our company matures, so are our initial customers. Uh, and we want to be able to offer them the next step in the journey. I think that that part is super exciting for us because it's it's really the fulfillment of, of the dream of saying, hey, look, when we met you, you were in a really tough spot. Uh, we were able to help you get through that. And we were able to help you get through that in a good way. Now that you're in a position to start building, right? Like let's we want to participate that, and uh, we want to participate in that as well. If you'll have us, and then really going on that journey together, like this is just the beginning of of what we could do. Uh, I think the second thing is is actually like this is my my broader dream is that I, I really do think that there is an opportunity for local institutions to participate in financial services. So I, I'm thinking about nonprofits, but like this could apply to employers. This could apply to any sort of like community organization in the sense that like there is very unique knowledge there uh, and like understanding of individual people in the community and a willingness to help. And I, I think where it ties back to what we do is like what we do is we make it cheaper and more affordable to offer financial services. And if we can ultimately put those advantages in the hands of the people who honestly have better contextual knowledge about the potential clientele. There's, there's, there's a whole new world of financial services that could be offered that like someone disproportionately could pick on Bank of America uh, because I bank with them. But like the Bank of America will, will, will never really understand. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's a really, really bright future for financial services as the culture changes and as information gets better. I, I think that you, you, you could see financial services becoming fundamentally different and, and much more locally focused. Well, I hope that happens. Sounds like a great vision. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been super fun. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today, and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.